0: Thanks for listening to Westminster Insider. We'll get started right after this. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. JD Power ranks Sleep Number number 1 in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For JD Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com/awards. Only at a Sleep Number
1: store or sleepnumber.com. Today's episode is presented by Lloyds Banking Group. Everyone deserves a safe place to call home. That's why Lloyds Banking Group has championed the social housing sector for decades, supporting more than 340 housing associations across the UK. Energy and
0: persistence conquer all things, said America's founding father, Benjamin Franklin. But this year, these two powerful forces... Russian energy and Ukrainian persistence have been going head to head. For 2022 has been the year, as if you needed reminding, of the first major land war in Europe in decades, precipitating an energy crisis which has exposed the continent's over-reliance upon a global gas market dominated by unsavoury regimes. As winter closes in, energy remains Vladimir Putin's chief weapon against the powerful Western nations lined up behind Ukraine. And the need for energy will dominate what happens next.
2: Well, the conflict in Ukraine and the sanctions on Russia have led to another surge
3: in the cost of oil and gas.
1: The invasion is causing US markets to tank and gas prices to soar. And
3: uh, we are very concerned about the impact on energy prices of the global energy crisis.
0: The impact of all this has varied from nation to nation, of course. And although Britain buys little gas direct from Russia, the fallout of the war upon domestic life has been profound.
4: So far we haven't seen any shortages of supply. That's the good news.
0: This is Natalie Thomas, energy correspondent for the Financial Times.
4: The people who have been suffering from all of this is consumers and businesses. You all know very well from your own energy bills that even though the government has intervened to effectively cap the price per unit of electricity and gas, that the average, the typical household bill uh, is currently around £2,500 a year. And that's double what it was last year. And even last year, that was considered expensive. From April, that sort of average bill for a typical household is expected to go up to £3,000 a year. And That's just unaffordable for a great many households. So the main effect so far has really been through high prices.
0: Much of the debate this year has centred upon how much financial support we should offer domestic and business users for their rising energy prices. But in the background, ministers have also been frantically reassessing Britain's long-term energy strategy in a world where one of the planet's main gas producers is now a de facto battlefield enemy.
5: None of this would be happening if it weren't for Russia's invasion of Ukraine.
0: Within weeks of Putin's illegal invasion of Ukraine, Prime Minister Boris Johnson was rushing out a new UK energy supply strategy, promising huge investment in nuclear power and offshore wind.
5: This is about... Tackling some of the mistakes of the past and making sure that we're no longer subject to blackmail from people such as Vladimir Putin.
0: And only this week, the government has lifted the de facto ban on onshore wind farms following a rebellion from Tory MPs. Once shuttered undersea storage sites for natural gas are now being hastily reopened. They're even planning to dig a new coal mine, for goodness sake, almost a decade after the last deep pit closed.
5: This former industrial site is about to become home to the UK's first new coal mine in 30 years.
0: But watching the government scrambling to respond, it was hard not to think, well, isn't this all a bit late? Like, how did we get here? A once-proud, self-sufficient island flailing on the prongs of Putin's energy price war, struggling to keep ourselves warm, praying the winter is mild, wondering if we can keep the lights on until spring. Who took the decisions that got us here? And why did they seem to get so much of it so wrong? Energy policy is hammered out over years and decades by governments of all shapes and sizes. So can anyone agree on who's actually to blame?
2: That long moratorium was inflicted by the Blair government.
6: You were seeing backbench pressure on the Prime Minister, on David Cameron to start backing away from
3: onshore Wind. So David Cameron, in his wisdom, um, opted to cut the green crap.
4: Governments wanted the market to deliver nuclear plants.
5: That, I think, was the single worst policy mistake. I do think we would benefit from trying to depoliticise that.
0: From Politico, I'm Jack Blanchard, and this week on Westminster Insider, we're looking at the history of the UK's energy policy through the lens of a series of stupid mistakes. And trying to figure out if we can stop the same pattern playing out again and again in the years ahead. When Britain ruled the world, it was coal that lit the fires which led the way. The industrial revolution which transformed this country in the 18th and 19th centuries from punchy agrarian middleweight to genuine global superpower was a coal-powered phenomenon. A revolution based on pure energy as much as technology or force of will. Coal, of course, was literally as old as the hills and had been used in Britain as far back as Roman times to heat homes and public baths and so on. But for the most part, in olden times, Britain burned relatively inefficient fuels. Wood, brush, manure, straw, even peat. It was the harnessing of Britain's vast underground coal resources in the late 18th century. The industrialisation of energy itself, which was the transformational moment. Smelting iron and powering steam engines and building the most powerful empire on the planet. For 200 years, Britain burned coal like it was going out of fashion. Until suddenly, that's exactly what happened.
4: Faced with a loss of 20,000 jobs in the next year, will the miners be driven into a nationwide strike?
0: 40 pits will close. The coal board say it's less than that.
4: The National Coal Board has to close on economic pits. It always has.
2: It's dirty, dark and 11 kilometres from fresh air. This is the last shift in the last of Britain's deep coal mines.
0: Happily for Britain, or miraculously really, as UK coal production declined in the post-war period, a new natural resource emerged to take its place.
6: This is Morecambe Bay, where the production platforms of the gas field are now as much a feature of Northwest England as Blackpool Tower and the Illuminations. This is big business.
3: 5,000 billion cubic feet of gas down there and a £1.3 billion investment to get at it. And that's only phase one.
5: It's such fun to cook so many wonderful dishes with high-speed gas. Heat that obeys you.
0: The discovery of North Sea oil and gas fields powered another economic boom through much of the 1980s and helped keep the lights on as the use of coal declined. Britain's proud tradition as a global energy powerhouse would continue, for a little while longer, at least. But all good things must come to an end, and around the turn of the millennium, North Sea oil and gas production peaked. At the same time, the implications of the warming global climate were becoming horribly clear. As the 21st century dawned, Britain would need new and low-carbon ways to generate its own power, as the oil and gas ran out. But at least we'd had time to prepare for that, right?
3: I think we have a tendency as a nation to rely on something that we know is going to run out well past the time when we know it's going to run out. This is Adam Bell,
0: who was the UK's head of energy strategy as a civil servant in the Department for Business until he left to join consultancy Stonehaven last year.
3: We should have had a stronger national strategy around what we do when the North Sea starts to run dry. The fact that we didn't is a historical failing.
0: The history of Britain's energy strategy since the oil and gas boom is not a happy one. There are many places you could start, but if we're gonna tell this chronologically, then we should probably kick things off with the UK's nuclear program. There was a time, after all, when nuclear power was meant to be Britain's bright energy future. Incredibly now, no fewer than 26 nuclear reactors were opened in the UK over a 15-year period after World War II, including the first full-scale commercial nuclear power station on the planet, Calder Hall, at Sellafield in Cumbria.
3: Today, Her Majesty the
6: Queen is coming to Calder Hall to open Britain's first atomic power station.
0: It is with pride... But I
3: now open Calder Hall. So Britain um, was pioneering this development of commercial nuclear power and the first commercial power plants in the world was um, built in in the UK. Unfortunately, in the um, 60s, when we were looking at the next generation of power plants to build, we decided that we wanted nuclear power to be a function of our industrial policy. We were choosing at that point between two different uh, reactor designs. A pressurized water reactor, where the coolant was going to be um, water held under so much pressure that it doesn't turn to steam, even at high temperatures. Um, or an advanced gas-cooled reactor, where that coolant was carbon dioxide. The advanced gas-cooled reactor was a British design, and the assumption of the government at the time was that by picking this design and rolling it out in the UK, we'd be able to sell this design overseas. It had a number of uh, supposed technical advantages. The key was that it could be refueled in flights. You didn't need to shut down the reactor to insert new fuel rods. Following this decision, we built a number of these reactors, And it turned out that you couldn't actually refuel them in flight because the pressures in the reactor itself meant that, in a very, very technical term, the fuel rods just jiggled around too much. (laughs) And you really don't want that that to happen with your um, radioactive fuel rods, ideally. It sounds
0: bad, yeah.
3: Um, So despite a number of efforts to make the system actually work, we uh, we basically abandoned that part of the the technology and failed to sell any of these devices around the world.
0: So there's our first blunder. When the second generation of nuclear power stations were being designed, Britain essentially backed the wrong horse. The excellently titled Minister for Power in the Wilson government, a guy called Fred Lee, famously said the British-designed reactors were a breakthrough of historic significance. We've hit the jackpot this time, he told MPs. Spoiler, we had not. Eventually, subsequent British governments decided to buy in American-designed reactors for the next generation of nuclear power stations, starting with Sizewell B on the Suffolk coast. But as the 1980s dawned, public and political opposition to nuclear power was growing, and the incoming Thatcher government was feeling the heat.
3: The environmental lobby, which was already anti-nuclear, took on a new kind of depth of importance for the government, and um, the Conservatives at the time held an inquiry in Sizewell B just to kind of ha- try to handle the sort of pressure they were getting from the Green Movement. This inquiry dragged on and on and on, and the construction of Sizewell B was only complete at the start of the 90s, despite being originally planned to start by the beginning of the 80s. This also coincided with privatisation. None of the new private companies wanted to take on the nuclear fleet. While we were able to um, ultimately um, palm off the uh, nuclear power stations under a mix of Centrica and EDF, the actual scope for building any more nuclear power stations was pretty much absent. And there was no scope, really, to get into um, new forms of financing.
0: Now, this is meant to be a non-partisan podcast, so I'm not going to pass judgment on the idea of privatisation as an approach to the economy per se. But the decision not to offer financial support to new nuclear power stations, adopted by the Tories in the mid-1990s and picked up enthusiastically by the incoming Labour government in 1997, meant no new nuclear was built at all for many years to come.
3: Well, it was the politics in Britain in the 90s, so there was still the legacy of of the impact of the environmental movement on the debate. Um, Certainly the Conservatives in their um, 92 manifesto, 97 manifesto, made no reference to nuclear. Neither did Labour. It was seen as um, beyond the pale.
0: Indeed, it was not until 2006 when Tony Blair, by then Prime Minister for almost a decade, announced nuclear power was back on the menu. And construction would not actually begin on the UK's next nuclear power station at Hinkley Point until 2017, 11 years later. Former Tory energy ministers are scathing about what they see as Labour's failure on nuclear power.
2: The single most damaging area of policy, I think, for Britain has been the nuclear moratorium. The long wasted years between Sizewell uh, opened, I think, in the mid-90s and Hinkley going to be open in the late 2020s.
0: This is Michael Fallon, Tory energy minister for 14 months between 2013 and 2014.
2: That long moratorium, which I'm afraid was inflicted by the Blair government when they came in in 97, has cost us dearly because it meant that the nuclear fleet that we relied on is ageing, it's slowly now being phased out, and Hinkley will only replace some 7% of our power and it's been more expensive to remedy because, of course, we've lost some of the nuclear skills in that industry that you, that you need to build nuclear power stations. So that, I think, was the single worst policy mistake. And I'm very glad that we were able, when I was there, to uh, press the button and get Hinkley negotiated and started.
0: And here's Michael Fallon's predecessor but one, Charles Hendry, who took over the energy brief following the 2010 election.
6: If you believe that nuclear should be part of the, the mix, and I do, then it's a mistake to have 10, 15 years when you weren't getting new investment coming into that sector. And if we had done what the French have done, then uh, they've got issues this year with some of the outages going on. But they have a much lower carbon footprint for their power generation. They're much more uh, protected against external shocks because so much more of it is done domestically and so that I think without any doubt that we would have been in a more secure position now uh, had we not had
0: that sort of 15-year gap. Hendry, however, is generous enough to point out that there was no real clamour for change from the opposition parties either, prior to Blair's Volt Fass in 2006.
6: At that point, remember, the Conservative Party were saying uh, nuclear should be the last resort. Uh, The Lib Dems were anti-nuclear And so there was a bit of movement around, by the time of the 2010 election, the Lib Dems were willing to accept it. If we've cleared up the legacy of the past and done much more on decommissioning, the Conservative Party had moved to a position about saying no subsidy, but they could be built. And it was only much later on that we saw much greater enthusiasm in number 10 and number 11 about nuclear. But when we came into government, that enthusiasm was still lukewarm. Were politicians reluctant to lead on nuclear because they felt the public was? Well, there was certainly popular enthusiasm for it in the areas which had nuclear legacies. And if you then looked at other areas where nuclear fleets were coming towards the end of their life, then the people who are working there would have loved to have seen new plants. So there was no local nervousness about this. So this was more about a national policy. Was it safe? What about the waste? What about the long-term costs of that? And Labour weren't initially persuaded about that. And it was only when they looked at the huge volume of generating plant that would be coming offline, the end of the coal fleet, uh, the need to move away from gas and need to decarbonize. that they then said, OK, well, actually, you can't do that really at scale without nuclear.
0: Let's be absolutely clear about this. We are not going to be able to make up, through wind farms, all the deficit on nuclear power. We're just not
5: going to be able to do it.
0: Blair's change of heart was total, and his speech announcing the shift in policy looks horribly prescient now. The facts are stark, Blair told business leaders in his landmark speech in 2006. By 2025, if current policy is unchanged, there will be a dramatic gap in our targets to reduce CO2 emissions. We will become heavily dependent on gas, and at the same time, move from being 80 to 90 percent self-reliant in gas to 80 to 90 percent dependent on foreign imports, mostly from the Middle East and Africa and Russia.
3: Well, let's just start by reminding ourselves where Europe's gas actually comes from, primarily from Russia. So it came to pass.
0: But, hang on a minute, 2006 was the best part of 20 years ago. So where are all our shiny new nuclear power stations now? Here's the former Whitehall official in charge of energy strategy, Adam Bell.
3: Although some thinking started under Labour about how you could finance a new nuclear, there was still a kind of almost ideological assumption that it had to be delivered through private finance, and so you needed the mechanism for doing that. And it simply takes a long time to re-engineer the market before you can find ways of delivering these plants. They are very large capital investments, and Hinkley is billions and billions of pounds. And providing that sort of assurance means lots of different decision-makers need to be squared off, and you need to ensure that your contract is absolutely watertight. People listening might not just think, why didn't the government just go and build some new nuclear power stations? That is a very reasonable question. And the answer is that um, there was no kind of almost a political space for it. There was no world in which Labour wanted to stand up and say we are going to, as a nation, build nuclear power stations and allocate public capital towards them. Do other countries do that? So different countries have different sorts of approaches to nuclear power. So France, of course, um, via its national champion EDF, built a series of nuclear power plants to cover off a big chunk of its electricity demand in the 60s, 70s and 80s. That was largely built. Through a combination of private finance, through the F, and government spending. The details of spending on nuclear in France are still unclear to this day. In South Korea, which is the most successful example of a nuclear fleet rollouts, focused on identifying a particular model that they wanted to roll out, then just stamping that model out over and over again. Um, So that relied on both a mix of private and public uh, capital.
0: And how do France and South Korea find themselves placed now in the middle of a global energy crisis compared to the UK?
3: So South Korea um, is doing uh, reasonably well. They're expanding the offshore wind as well. France is in a different position because its nuclear fleet is quite old. Very unfortunately, this year, a significant chunk of it is down for maintenance. And so the UK has been exporting to France um, over the course of um, this year, and will probably export to France over the winter as well. Normally, it is the other way around. But France, much like the UK, did not build enough nukes to replace the ones that were coming offline. So it took a smart strategic decision, but then didn't keep following through in the decades that followed. Yes, uh, I think the big theme of this is that if you have a strategy, you should probably stick to it rather than to it constantly changing every decade or so.
0: These collective financing decisions meant that we stand today at the end of 2022 amidst a global energy crisis with only a handful of ageing nuclear power stations left to play with and only a couple of new ones in the works for the years ahead.
4: At the start of... This decade, we had something like nine gigawatts of nuclear spread across eight plants.
0: Natalie Thomas of the FT.
4: A lot of those plants were ageing. We've seen a lot of closures. And now we have uh, just five plants remaining. For years nuclear industry experts have been saying look we understand why you want to move to offshore wind, but if the wind's not blowing and if the sun's not shining and, and solar farms aren't are also providing electricity, what is going to be the backup here? And particularly crucially, what is going to be the backup as you lead up to net zero? Because at the moment the main backup are, are gas fired power stations. But governments wanted the market to deliver nuclear plants. They wanted private enterprise to basically fund what are very risky and lengthy projects. And the upshot of all of that has been that we only have currently one new nuclear plant under construction, that's Hinkley Point C uh, down in Somerset. We've had to rely on uh, Chinese state financing for that the other lead partner on that project is the French government-backed EDF that is funding the construction of that. So, while the UK government wasn't prepared to, you know, fund nuclear itself, it, it was basically relying on on other governments to fund our own nuclear schemes. So, you could say that, you know, really with nuclear, there's just been too much reliance on on the market delivering. And, and finally, I think. This government has come to the sort of belated conclusion that in order to get more nuclear up and running, the UK taxpayer has to take a stake in new nuclear projects. Uh, you'll know that there is a plan to build another new nuclear power station at size well. In Suffolk.
6: Breaking news, the business secretary, Grant Chaps, has confirmed the government's decision to back the Sizewell Sea nuclear power plant in Suffolk.
4: The government has very recently committed to that plant and has provided £700 million of um, government financing to to take a stake in the plant. Now, that's just to get it up to the point where there is a final investment decision. So that's just development funding at the moment. There's going to be an awful lot more that that will be needed to fund the entire thing. There are various estimates of how much it will cost, but they range between £20 billion and £30 billion. So it's an astonishingly uh, expensive undertaking.
0: Coming up after the break, we'll have more energy blunders to pick over. And this time, it's David Cameron in The Firing Line. Stay with us.
3: When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase.
1: BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. A message from Lloyd's Banking Group. Lloyd's Banking Group has championed social housing for decades. It provides finance, expertise and guidance to more than 340 housing associations across the UK. These range from small local associations of several hundred homes to much larger regional associations responsible for tens of thousands of properties. Each has an important role to play in their community to help people find a safe place to call home. Improving access to quality and affordable homes is central to Lloyds Banking Group's commitment to helping Britain prosper. That's why Lloyds Banking Group is calling for one million more homes to be made available for social rent over the next decade.
0: It's important to say that UK energy policy over recent decades has had plenty of good news to go with the bad. Politicians on all sides agreed that as the coal and gas was being phased out, Britain would need to harness one of its other great natural resources, wind, to help fill the gap. That meant that first New Labour and then the coalition government created new funding mechanisms to convince both on- and offshore wind developers to start building their turbines in the UK. And build them they most certainly did.
6: We knew we had to get a huge amount of investment coming in.
0: Here's Charles Hendry again, Tory energy minister between 2010 and 2012.
6: So what market reform was designed to do was to make the UK a much more attractive market to international investors. And that has clearly happened. If you look now, going back 12 years, 5% of our electricity came from renewables. Today, it's well over 40%, often over 50%. And if you add in nuclear, then our low carbon electricity is 60 70%. And that is much more than anybody believed was possible.
0: And in as simple terms as we can, because my listeners won't all be energy policy experts, how did you do that, that that rapid rollout, particularly of renewables that we've seen over the last 15 years? The very complex mechanisms were invented, weren't they, in government to make this happen? Can you crystallise that for us in ways that people understand?
6: So the basic change was you gave people a guaranteed price for their investment. So for each unit of electricity which they generated, they were guaranteed a fixed price over a certain number of years. If the wholesale price went up, then you would reduce the amount of that top-up. Indeed, now they're paying back because the wholesale price has gone up so much. If the wholesale price went down, then it was increased. And so it offered them stability. And that meant that people looking at energy infrastructure around the world found the United Kingdom one of the most attractive
0: places to go to. On- and offshore wind developers flocked to the UK, and Britain's reliance upon fossil fuels began to rapidly fall. And offshore wind at least, was pretty much universally welcomed, especially as the sky-high price began to come down.
6: Offshore wind is one of the most extraordinary industrial successes anywhere in the world. The UK government said we want to have real leadership in this sector, and we're prepared to take a higher price initially in order to get more of the engineering work, more of the development work, and the UK is seen as the mother country uh, for offshore wind the mechanisms have brought the prices down dramatically to a third quarter
0: of what they were ten years ago. Indeed, the scale of the UK's offshore wind ambitions are enormous. The government wants 50 gigawatts of energy to be produced offshore by the end of this decade, equivalent to 15 Hinkley points. But back onshore, not everyone in the Tory party was convinced the fleets of huge turbines springing up across the British countryside in the late 2000s and early 2010s were such a good idea.
6: You were beginning to see a pressure changing. You were seeing backbench pressure on the Prime Minister, on David Cameron to start backing away from onshore wind. Most people weren't saying that take them down. They were just saying, look, we've got enough locally. We don't want more of them. The membership of the Conservative Party historically were quite anti-onshore wind and that started to flex the policy and to lead to the, uh, uh, the ban which we then subsequently saw coming in place. Um, had we not had that, then we would have seen much, much more onshore wind happening in the UK.
0: In late 2014, after months or even years of pressure from Tory backbenchers, David Cameron announced he was withdrawing all government subsidy from onshore wind and would leave decisions purely to the planning system. The following year, he changed the planning rules so that new onshore wind farms would almost never win approval.
2: Do you need to go on with a planning system that gives such priority to wind farms rather than local opinion?
0: In his own words, the once husky-hugging Cameron had chosen to cut the green crap. Adam Bell was working in Whitehall when the decision was taken.
3: It was intensely frustrating. Um, I wasn't working directly on power at that stage, but um, it was the consensus view of the department that this was a mistake and being driven entirely by the need of the Prime Minister and the Cabinet to appease their backbenchers.
0: Could it have been argued we've got enough wind power in this mix now and that's a good policy reason to stop building?
3: Oh, absolutely not. Um, So the way in which you would define enough wind is by its load factor and when you're curtailing it excessively so curtailing means switching it off because no one needs needs the power by 2014 um, all the wind that was being produced in england was being used and quite frankly we're going to continue using as much of it as we can uh, even up until um, 2013 we'll have 50 gigawatts according to the government of offshore wind so we were nowhere near the upper bound of it renewables penetration in the system at that point
0: Now clearly, it's not just Whitehall officials who feel Cameron made a disastrous call. Because nearly eight years on from Cameron's de facto ban, one of his Tory successors as Prime Minister this week caved into pressure from a different group of backbenchers and lifted that moratorium on onshore wind, just so long as local people are happy with whatever is being planned. Here's the former Energy Minister, Michael Fallon.
2: I think we need to find a way of allowing that to proceed where there is local consent for it. There are countries on the continent that are welcome having an offshore wind turbine in their village. They throw a, a welcome party for it because they, they know directly it's going to reduce their bills. And that's the bit we missed. I think we should have built in a much stronger incentive so that if there was a majority in a local area that was prepared to accept a turbine, slightly tucked away, if you like, out of, out of view, they would have enjoyed the reductions in their energy costs very directly.
0: So we've U-turned on nuclear power, belatedly, and now we've U-turned on onshore wind as well. But while we're waiting for all these onshore turbines and offshore turbines and nuclear power stations to be built, a stark reality remains. We're going to be reliant upon gas for quite a few more years to come. And part of the problem Britain is facing just at the moment, with Putin's taps still firmly switched off, is that unlike other European countries, we keep only very tiny amounts of gas in reserve in the event of a crisis.
6: So going back to when we were in opposition, a part of our manifesto was to do more on gas storage. Here's Charles Hendry. And uh, I tried to amend the Labour government's Energy Act in 2010, which was going to say that we would do more on gas storage, and they voted it down. Uh, My last act in Parliament really was to try and amend the 2015 Infrastructure Act under the coalition, uh, which would have again required more gas storage, and again it was blocked by the government. So uh, both governments have had uh, records on this, which in retrospect have fallen short. But my view was look, there is an additional cost, and this is why the Treasury didn't like it, that there is an additional cost to households from rec- having gas storage, which you may not always need. In a winter crisis, then it's like an insurance policy. We want to know that if there is a catastrophic incident, then we are protected. And that's what I thought gas storage did. Um, ministers would say, well, look, historically, our gas storage was in the North Sea. If we needed more, we could pump more out. And therefore, we didn't need the same levels of gas storage that countries like Germany have. Uh, and then they would have said subsequently, we were then very interconnected with the pipelines to Norway and continental Europe elsewhere. Uh, and also with a big uh, liquefied natural gas terminals, which meant we could bring gas in from Qatar and elsewhere. And um, uh, I think that they, that's a, a solid argument, but it doesn't carry you through every single winter. And there have been some winters when we have been within hours of running out of gas. And National Grid has had to put out a statement about there being a, an, an, an imminent shortage. But I think we would have had more comfortable winters had we secured
0: that investment uh, earlier on one of the people seeking that investment was a guy called george grant founder of a firm called stag energy he drew up ambitious plans in the late 2000s for a vast gas storage site off the british coast and asked the uk government to invest in the project
5: i think the first discussion we had with government to talk about gas storage uh, was in 2004 2005. Um, where we said that gas storage is essentially part of uh, an insurance policy that um, one needs to look at from a sort of national perspective. Um, If there is disruption to supplies, um, either domestically or internationally, it's a little bit like, you know, paying for insurance on your house. Um, You hope that the house doesn't, you know, go on fire, but if it does, you sure as heck are glad it's there.
0: And it's something that other countries, particularly in Europe have these large facilities Germany for example having lots of gas storage
5: absolutely Germany uh, France tend to have around 80 or a hundred days equivalent gas usage which just provides a, a, you know a significant amount of capacitance um, if there is disruption or shortages um, and in the UK um, I think we have Five days now, and uh, really, it's for such a major gas-using country. Although we're obviously looking to to move away from that in the future, it's a ridiculously low level.
0: The way you phrase it, it seems like a bit of a no-brainer. How did the government react when you started talking to them about this as a a potential solution?
5: Varied uh, responses, to be honest, and and it's been over a number of governments. We started discussion with with the Labour government and Gordon Brown's government. That was the time we received planning consent for our project. And the government made an announcement saying that they were very pleased to award planning consent to this project and it would help protect against uh, disruption to gas supplies in the future. We said that, you know, getting planning consent was not uh, the only thing that needed to happen to uh, ensure that a facility got built, although we were very grateful for for planning consent. And then subsequent uh, governments, Tories came in, Charles Hendry, who'd been shadow energy minister for many moons, was, was quite supportive of putting some sort of safety net in place to ensure that, you know, more gas storage was built Michael Fallon was much more a sort of marketeer or, or focused on market-based solutions and non-interventionist and uh, said that you know, really the, the market would determine whether additional gas storage was required and really pulled back from, uh, from the government putting any sort of safety net mechanism in place.
0: What other gas for storage facilities were there around the UK in the 2010s and did the government continue to support them?
5: Uh, no, there was no uh, support mechanism in place. The uh, the major facility was owned by Centrica, that was called Ruff. Um that was a depleted gas field in the North Sea that had about five days of supply. And we quite often met the government with Centrica um, when we were talking about these support mechanisms to say that not only would nothing new get built if there was no sort of safety net or revenue insurance, but some of the existing facilities would close. And indeed, uh, the rough facility uh, closed in, I think it was 2017 as a result of, I guess, the costs of, of maintaining the facility. That's something that, that could have been maintained uh, if there'd been a little bit more foresight.
0: Had the government invested in your uh, your project and continued to invest in, in Rough as well, how much better place do you think we would have been uh, coming into this year in the energy shock we've seen following the war in Ukraine?
5: I, I mean, I think fundamentally, the gas storage facilities um, would not have protected us entirely from the price shocks that we've seen because that's a, a global phenomenon. What it would have provided is uh, comfort and security against uh, supply interruption over the winter. So it, it would have provided a lot more confidence that there would not be a need to curtail supplies. It
0: must have been immensely frustrating for you to have got to the point of planning permission and then not seen this project supported and now to See the things pan out the way they are, and just be thinking this is exactly what we said would happen.
5: Yeah, very frustrating. I mean, it, it doesn't help too much to to just sit there and say I told you so. But um, you know, we were contacted by the government earlier this year and uh, asked how the project was getting on, and uh, we said, well, we told you ten years ago that. A, it takes about eight to 10 years to build one of these facilities, so you can't ring up when there's a problem and say, you know, can you sort this next week? And secondly, we said without some sort of safety net for revenue in the way that the market was working, uh, there was no way that new capacity was going to be built. So it shouldn't be any surprise (laughs) for us to tell you that um, it hasn't happened.
0: If you look on the gov.uk website, you can still see the decision issued by then Energy Minister Michael Fallon not to offer public funds for gas storage sites like George Grant's project, or like the existing Centrica site, known as Ruff. Fallon, no new subsidy needed for gas storage. The headline reads, Decision saves bill payers up to £750 million. I called him up to ask him if he had any regrets.
2: Well, that was, remember, before Crimea. I'm not sure that decision would have been taken in the same way after Crimea. And indeed, I think ministers have been looking at how they might support um, the reopening of some of the gas storage that subsequently closed. I didn't close any gas storage, but there were proposals to uh, to develop more of it coming from the private sector. There was small gas storage sites already being developed And I didn't see the case for us subsidizing them further because the market was already coming forward with with certain sites. We've got to be careful about storage. It's not clear that having more storage necessarily affects the price. Um, It perhaps gives you slightly more um, reassurance about the security of uh, supply. Um, But it's certainly a decision that, um, I guess, ministers uh, would have revisited and should have revisited you know, after Crimea, after we saw the danger from Russia from uh, 14 onwards.
0: I guess the argument might be less about price and more about if we're really facing a winter this winter when there's a genuinely the government is having to prepare for the possibility of controlled blackouts. That might be an argument for having greater gas storage to avoid a scenario like that, might it not?
2: Yeah, but that's, you know, the margin, as you described it. That's something, you know, we looked at every single year to make sure we had means of dealing with a very sharp winter. And we had enough going on. We had interconnectors with the continent, we had LNG coming in. You know, there was enough for us to be confident. Possibly a bit more storage would have helped, but that would have been, you know, a subsidy that you would have had to take away from renewables, you'd have had to take away from something else. So, you know, it's always a balance of, of decision making. It would have been different, I think, after Crimea. The threat from Russia, you know, would have been clearer. And I think you could legitimately ask. You know, what ministers did, what did they do when Centrica came back in 15 and 16 and said, right, the big rough site is going to close unless you give us some kind of funding to refurbish it. I don't know the answer to that.
0: As with the Cameron era moratorium on onshore wind, the government is now belatedly reversing its decision on gas storage or trying to. FT journalist Natalie Thomas visited Easington in County Durham last month on a visit to the previously mothballed rough gas storage site, which the government has been scrambling to reopen this year.
4: Kwasi Kwarteng, at the time, he was business secretary. He, he picked up the phone to Centrica this year and he said, look, you know, what can we do to try and reopen this, this gas storage site in, in, in time for winter? And Centrica managed to do that uh, in time for this winter. They opened it uh, in October, that's when they started putting gas back into rough for storage. And then, actually, this month, when cold weather Started to really kick in, they took it out uh, to to inject in the national uh, gas grid for the first time. So it's quite it's quite a big moment uh, in British uh, energy security, but it's only currently operating as a fifth of its previous capacity. So it's by no means silver bullet. It's going to help us this winter, but it does highlight uh, some very questionable decisions that have been made by successive governments over the years and, and just a sort of complacency that that seems to have uh, slipped in over energy security
0: when you went out there and met sort of people that working there were involved in the facility were they rolling their eyes at the decision taken in 2017 to let this thing close
4: They were very diplomatic, said, oh, well, it's very good to look back on these things uh, in in hindsight. But I did speak to other people who criticised the 2017 decision and, you know, very presciently at the time said, look, this is going to leave us vulnerable to high prices and potential supply shortages Uh, So, you know, they didn't quite say I told you so, but (laughs) they did highlight that, you know, this has been one of the areas where uh, government policy has just been a little bit too complacent and, and too reliant on market forces. But I think all governments have suddenly got a big shock this year that energy security is not something that can be outsourced. Uh, And it's not only the UK government that's made that mistake. Obviously Germany was heavily reliant on Russian gas. Countries across Europe had had, had effectively outsourced it and governments are now looking again at, at domestic security.
0: There have been many more policy failures in UK energy over recent years and the failure to make our homes still the leakiest in Western Europe, more energy-efficient, is probably top of the list. You might question, too, the pace at which we're investing and experimenting with new technologies such as tidal power and carbon capture and storage. And there are plenty of people who think we should have spent the last ten years fracking the north of England for shale gas. And plenty more who'd say that's a terrible idea. But in terms of the big decisions on energy generation the trail of blunders is clear. A series of poor decisions by successive governments, most of them Labour-led, around nuclear power. Then a Conservative moratorium on onshore wind farms, just as they were taking off. And then a failure by both Labour and the Tories to create large-scale gas storage sites have, collectively, left Britain far more vulnerable than it needed to be to Vladimir Putin's energy war on the West. Whether the next generation of policymakers can do better at protecting Britain against whatever crises the next two decades have in store remains to be seen. We can only rub our hands together, throw on another jumper or two, and hope they can. Thanks for listening to Westminster Insider with me, Jack Blanchard. If you've enjoyed it, do please follow us wherever you normally get your podcasts. And don't forget you can go back and listen to past episodes too, including our look in season three at why Britain never builds enough homes. My producer this week was James Tyndale of Whistledown Productions, and here at Politico, my executive producer is Christina Gonzalez. We'll be back next week. I'll see you then.